Welcome back to the Agora, the podcast that looks into what's happening in and around Greece. I'm Nick Malkoutsis. And I'm Phoebe Fronista. On this episode, we'll be examining a tragic event that took place off the coast of Greece on June 14th. On that night, a fishing boat packed with hundreds of migrants who had paid traffickers to get them from Libya to Italy sank into the deep waters of the Mediterranean about 90 kilometers southwest of the town of Pilos in the Peloponnese. It's thought that there were more than 600 people of many nationalities on board, although the biggest contingent appears to have been from Pakistan. Only 104 of those who boarded the vessel, a trawler named Adriana, were rescued. 82 have been confirmed dead, and up to 500 more feared to have drowned. This makes the Pilos shipwreck one of the worst tragedies of its kind ever witnessed in Greece and Europe. This devastating incident, which occurred in international waters but was in Greece's search and rescue area, has resonated even more over the past few weeks. A series of investigative reports suggest not only that more could have been done to prevent so many deaths, but that the Greek Coast Guard may have contributed to the boat sinking an allegation that the Greek authorities deny. We will try to piece together what happened on that night and perhaps try to understand why it happened with the help of one of the journalists that's been working on uncovering the details of this story. We will also be speaking to a member of an NGO that is dedicated to rescuing stranded migrants in the Mediterranean to hear about some of the basics of this kind of work. The events off the coast of Pylos have raised questions not only about how the Greek authorities approached this situation, but also about how the European Union is responding to these dangerous crossings by migrants and and asylum seekers. For context, it's worth remembering that the United Nations has registered more than 20,000 deaths and disappearances in the central Mediterranean since 2014. I think we can all agree that's a staggering number. This makes the crossing from North Africa to Europe, which is sometimes more than 500 kilometers long, the most dangerous migrant route in the world. What makes the Pilos shipwreck such a standout case, though, is that there's growing doubt about whether this tragedy could have been avoided. A series of reports by international and local media suggest that the Greek Coast Guard did not treat its engagement with the Adriana as a search and rescue operation. The Greek authorities also reportedly rejected more than one offer from the EU border agency, Frontex, for assistance in dealing with the overcrowded trawler, as well as information that there were dead children on board hours before the boat sank. According to testimony from migrants on board, published in these media reports, the Greek Coast Guard vessel that approached the trawler may have contributed to the sinking by trying to tow the precarious vessel. It's a claim that Greece denies. 
The facts and claims surrounding this incident have been set out in a range of excellent reports that we will provide links to in the show notes so that you can get a more comprehensive picture of events. I sat down, though, with one of the journalists that's been working on this story, Lydia Emanuelidou, to discuss what happened to the Adriana and the people on board. Lydia contributed to a report in The Guardian recently, which drew attention to the role of the Greek Coast Guard in the ship's sinking. Let's hear what Lydia had to say. She's an independent journalist based between Greece and the U.S., and whose work has appeared in many international outlets, including The New York Times, NPR, and the BBC. Lydia, before we get into the details of what happened on the night the Adriana sank off the coast of Greece, could you tell us about your encounter with some of the survivors, only a small minority of them, of course, who were on board, made it off the trawler alive? What did they tell you? What kind of state did you find them in when you visited them? What were their stories? Yeah, well, by the time I met with survivors, they had been taken to Malakasa. This is the registration center refugee camp right outside of Athens. Uh, And by then, several days, almost a week had passed since the shipwreck. But the people I met were still in a complete state of shock, still trying to process what happened. Many of them, as you know, had lost family and friends. Some had watched their family and friends drown. Uh, Most of the people I tried to speak to were hesitant Uh, or afraid to speak with media because Greek officials had suggested to them that it's best they don't. Um, Mm -hmm. This is something that a Greek migration official confirmed to me and other journalists, you know, on the record. Uh, One of the things that will stick with me is the time that I spent with a group of young guys, uh, survivors from Pakistan, you might have heard that it's believed that as many as 350 people aboard the, the, the migrant vessel were from Pakistan, and only 12 survived. So one of these guys, a 23-year-old, he told me when I first met him that he still has nightmares about the night of the sinking. He lost several friends and family members. He doesn't know how to swim, so after the boat capsized, he was floating in the water for what felt like an hour, hearing people around him, you know, screaming for help. Uh, And he was certain, floating like that, that he was going to die. And this is something that keeps Mm -hmm. coming back to him at night. He ended up being rescued, of course. And his family back in Pakistan found out he was okay, actually, by seeing pictures of him disembarking in Kalamata, the port city where the survivors were initially taken to. And today he spends a lot of time speaking with his family uh, in Pakistan and some family he has in Europe. Uh, Each of the survivors I spoke to has a different story, of course, uh, but the common thread is that these people wanted to reach Italy and Europe more broadly to start better lives, to reunite with family. They all paid really large sums of money, 5,000 euros and upwards, according to our reporting, to make this journey. And many of the people that I and my colleagues spoke to for this investigation, for our investigation, blamed the Greek authorities for the eventual sinking of the boat. Mm. It's been shocking to read that some of those who survived, who lost friends and relatives in the shipwreck, recount 
two journalists how they feared that they would never make it out alive from the moment they actually stepped on that ship. Having met with the survivors, as you described, is it clear to you why people continue to pay what's a fortune for them to make such precarious crossings? Yeah, I, 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 as I said, you know, the people I met all have different stories, different reasons for making this journey. But there is this common thread uh, of people saying that they feel like they have no other choice but to make these these dangerous journeys. And I'll give you a couple of examples of the kinds of things I heard that helped me understand why when the stakes are so high. Um, so I met this young man, uh, a Syrian who's living in Germany, who had come to Greece to look for a family member, his cousin, who had been on the trawler. Uh, he told me that the cousin needed to flee Syria to avoid army conscription and that he had been applying for visas. Time after time after time, he was getting rejections. He tried for two years to get a visa, uh, but he wasn't successful, and he felt that his only option was to go to Libya, get on a boat, and try to join the rest of his family in Europe. Unfortunately, this young man appears to have uh, died in the shipwreck. His cousin, who came from Germany, never found him, but he found friends that um, the young man from Syria was traveling with. And they saw him on the boat. They confirmed he was on the boat. But, you know, nobody has seen him since. There are so many stories. I'm sure you've read them in all the various amazing uh, reporting and investigations that major media outlets have done, heart-wrenching stories. There were also people I spoke to who weren't aware exactly of what they were getting into. They were misled into thinking that this was a much safer, quicker route. For example, this 21-year-old Pakistani survivor that I spent a f- some time with, uh, he comes from a family of rice farmers back in Pakistan. He wanted to escape poverty and come to Europe for a better life. He paid smugglers upwards of 5,000 euros. He flew from, um, from Pakistan, from Karachi to Libya, and he thought he had been told by smugglers that he would be flying from Libya to Italy, which was the final destination. And instead, he smugglers kept him in Libya for weeks, basically sleeping outside uh, on the ground or in these small crammed rooms with uh, dozens of people who were about to get on, on this vessel and other ones. And when he finally did see the trawler and he realized he wasn't going to be flying from, from Libya to Italy, he was terrified. But he didn't want to get on. He says he, he wanted to go back to Pakistan. But by that point, his uh, money, smugglers had his money, they had his passport, and they had a way to force him onto the boat. And he felt that his life would be threatened if he didn't get on this boat. So some of these people don't necessarily are tricked into um, risking it all. You know, even, even those who are fully aware of the dangers still feel that they have no choice. So this, um, I spoke to a 23-year-old from from Kobani, which is a Kurdish-majority uh, city in northern Syria, uh, near the Turkish border, uh, one of the survivors. Uh, his name is Rayan. His cousin drowned in the shipwreck, and Rayan wrote this really powerful blog post uh, in the in the last couple weeks in in the last couple weeks in which he describes those final moments before the shipwreck when his cousin turned to him and essentially said i i told you we were going to die mm. doing this mm. and then his cousin did and still uh, rohayan has some family in germany and he told me that still despite losing all his money losing his cousin 
going through, you know, this incredibly traumatic event, he would still risk it all again to be able to go to Germany and reunite with his family. Incredible emotional stories. Uh, Lydia, let, let's move to the actual sinking of the ship. Based on the forensic work that's been done and the investigative reporting that you've contributed to along with other journalists, mm. what appears to have happened on the night the Adriana sank? My colleagues and I, uh, we interviewed more than 20 survivors. We also obtained uh, court documents, confidential records, including uh, sworn testimonies from survivors the Greek Coast Guard's, uh, the Greek Coast Guard captain's log of events. We spoke with confidential sources. Uh, one of our partners, the investigative nonprofit Forensis, they put together this map of the trawler's movements in those final crucial hours leading up to the sinking using all sorts of data, including maritime data, flight path data, videos from nearby commercial ships. And then we also used a, we, we constructed a 3D model of the boat to interview survivors and to really understand what the boat looked like and how it was moving. And here's uh, what we've, what we've pieced together, put, you know, distilled down to uh, just the simplest way I can, I can describe it because this stuff can get really complicated. Sure. Um, so the ship, what we've pieced together is the ship was lost, of course, contrary to what the, the fishing trawler was lost, of course, contrary to what Greek, contrary to Greek Coast Guard statements that it was on a steady path to Italy. So survivors say that around midnight into Wednesday, June uh, 14th, the Greek Coast Guard got in contact with them and said that it would direct them towards Italian waters. Remember, this is the destination that many that th that this boat set out to reach. Uh, what we see on the Forensis map during this time is the ship, the fishing trawler, suddenly moving west towards Italy and away from Greece. Survivors who were on the upper deck of the trawler and had a view of what was happening. They say that the Coast Guard attached a blue rope to their vessel and towed it twice. And they say that the second towing attempt is what caused the boat to sink. Survivors who were on the lower deck of the ship or inside and didn't have a direct view of what was going on, they told us that they felt a sudden jolt forward. One of them described the ship suddenly moving like a rocket. And remember, this is while the, the engine of the ship is not operating as far as we understand. Uh, another said he heard people around him shouting rope and Greek army minutes before the boat capsized. Uh, this is also consistent with testimonies that survivors have given to Greek prosecutors who are investigating what happened. Um, we obtained confidential court documents in which seven of the eight survivors that were interviewed mentioned the ropes, the towing, and a strong pull. And survivors have also mentioned this to their to the lawyers they are working with, the lawyers who are representing them. Based on that, what are the questions that the Greek Coast Guard and possibly Frontex has to answer about their roles in the operation, which was a monitoring watch for a long time before turning into a rescue? I guess a lot will center around whether the, the, the trawler was towed or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of, one of the questions is uh, why this incident wasn't recorded. You know, without any footage of the incident, we cannot say with certainty 
one way or the other exactly what happened and what caused the boat to sink. There's very strong evidence suggesting that it was the towing, but without the without a recording of it, we we cannot say with certainty. And one of the yeah. questions is why why wasn't the incident recorded? The Coast Guard vessel that was on the scene, the the 920 as it's called, it's equipped with cameras that are capable of recording at night. Uh, it's also 90% funded by Frontex, the European uh, Coast, uh, the European Border and Coast Guard Agency. And Frontex stipulates that, uh, or highly recommends that assets that it co-funds record these, uh, record these incidents whenever possible. The mm-hmm. Greek Coast Guard said that it didn't record because the crew was so focused on the operation. Uh, but you know, as, as our media partners started to put out our reporting last week, uh, the Greek Coast Guard leaked uh, a video to Greek media of the fishing trawler a few hours before the sinking. And this video was, it was a, it was a cell phone video taken of the kind of live feed of the Coast Guard vessel cameras. Mm. Uh, and, and again, it was, it was a video taken on cell phone by the Coast Guard captain. And according to Greek media, the captain took this video on his phone because the recording mechanism on the on the 920 wasn't working. So the explanation as to why the incident wasn't recorded has changed. Uh, and and this video in Greek media was presented as you know kind of proof that the boat was bound to sink because in this footage we see it rocking uh, and and moving, being unstable. Uh, keep in mind, this is a few hours before uh, the ship sank. So if this was the case, if the boat looked like it was about to sink, one of the big questions is why didn't the Coast Guard act earlier? We know that Frontex alerted Greek authorities about the trawler on Tuesday morning. Uh, activists with alarm phone were, uh, were communicating with the Greek authorities that the, that the trawler was in distress. But for several hours, Greece did... Very little, almost nothing. And the vessel they did dispatch from Crete on Tuesday afternoon took about seven hours to get to where the trawler was. And according to our reporting, there was at least one Coast Guard vessel stationed at a port much closer uh, to the migrant boat that was never dispatched. Lydia, what's been the response from the Greek authorities to the questions raised not only in the report that you contributed to, but several other media stories about apparent failings that led to this disaster. Well, we as a cohort sent the Greek Coast Guard a long list of very detailed questions. They told us that they were not, uh, they wouldn't be able to answer them because of the ongoing investigation. Uh, I think overall the the response has been uh, denial that the Coast Guard uh, did anything wrong. We heard the the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis uh, a few days ago. He called the accusations against the Greek Coast Guard unfair. Uh, he said that these are men and women who have saved thousands of lives, and that the priority should be dismantling smuggling networks. So, for the most part, in the times that the, the Coast Guard or Greek officials have spoken, they have uh, denied that there was uh, any wrongdoing by the Coast Guard here. And they've said that the investigation that is going on will, you know, hopefully shed some light into what happened. And what's your feeling about whether A, Greece will investigate this issue thoroughly and B, the scale that the scale of the tragedy might lead to the European Union changing perhaps the way it deals with uh, migrant crossings? 
Well, in the first question, I think there there are many people who are have doubts about this investigation. Uh, there have been calls for an international investigation, uh, which it's so far it doesn't seem like this will happen. Uh, but the reason why I think there the, the reason why many have doubts about the the Greek investigation going on is because of uh, the the Farmakonisi case in 2014, which many are comparing this this case to. So in that case in Farmakonisi, as you might remember, um, eleven. Women and children died off the coast, uh, off the Greek island of Farmakonisi when their boat capsized after being towed by the Greek mm-hmm. Coast Guard. Authorities at the time said they were bringing people to safety. Survivors were saying that they were being uh, pushed back towards Turkey. So this case went through the Greek courts and the Coast Guard was essentially cleared of any wrongdoing. But last year, the European Court of Human Rights passed uh what many have called a really damning judgment against the the Greek authorities. Essentially, they said that the Greek Coast Guard failed to protect the lives of the migrants and that it acted unlawfully and that Greece had not done a thorough investigation into precisely what caused the boat to sink. So this case is is raising some doubts about how Greece itself will handle the investigation. Uh, And and as to the question about the European Union uh, and whether it's going to change the deal with with migrant crossings. I mentioned, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk from Greek authorities all the way up to the EU's top migration officials on cracking down on smuggling uh, networks as a priority after the shipwreck, which, of course, yeah. is, is, is important. Um, and if you've been watching the, you know, the European Parliament debates and discussions post-shipwreck, you'll have seen some tense moments where MEPs, especially on the left, argue that the EU needs, what the EU needs is more legal pathways so that people don't have to resort to paying smugglers and taking dangerous routes dangerous routes to Europe. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, lawyers and, and advocates and some migration experts I've been speaking to, they say that without those legal pathways for people to come to Europe and seek international protection, uh, people will continue to die in the Aegean and at Europe's external borders. Lydia, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That was independent journalist Lydia Emanuelidou speaking to Nick about the Pilos shipwreck. Clearly, Phoebe, there's much investigating to be done before we find out definitively what happened to the Adriana and some 500 people who are thought to have lost their lives. Um, you know, speaking openly here, my, my biggest concern that is that the only genuine investigating that seems to have been done so far is by journalists. The public prosecutor in Greece mm-hmm. has made his probe secret. And the official line from the authorities seems to contradict the evidence that's been presented in media reports. And honestly, I'm not hopeful that we will get to the bottom of this, nor that anyone will be held accountable if anyone has to be held accountable. Uh, That would be a further injury, of course, to the memories of so many people lost in this tragedy, but it would also be a further blow to trust, accountability, 
and the rule of law in Greece. And sadly, those who've been listening to the Agora from the start know that it's not the first time we've had to express concern about such issues on this podcast. And there's also the broader issue, which has to do with how the EU as a whole approaches migrant crossings. And of course, the legal and technical complexities of saving lives at sea. Fortunately, though, we have another guest that may be able to address this. Yeah, that's right. I've been speaking to Valentina Brinis. She's a project manager at Open Arms, which is an NGO based in Barcelona, Spain. One of their main projects, Phoebe, involves a rescue boat called Open Arms, which they use to save migrants in distress in the Mediterranean. So I spoke to Valentina to find out what's involved in such operations and how possibly the EU could avoid so many deaths in the Med. Valentina, thank you for joining us on the Agora. Uh, we may have listeners who are not familiar with the work Open Arms does. Could you briefly explain what you what you do, and particularly with the ship that you have? Good morning, everybody. Open Arms is a humanitarian organization. We are based in Spanish, and we provide assistance to people in need in the Central Med. Open Arms, in eight years of activity, rescued more than 66,000 people. Uh, currently, we work in Spain, in the Central Med, uh, Mediterranean Sea, in Italy and in Senegal. And we promote the values related to the search and rescue towards European institutions and uh, European civil societies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that you will have seen the recent shipwreck off the coast of Greece with shock, with horror, like all of us. Uh, and I know you visited after the uh, uh, disaster. The role of the Greek Coast Guard and Frontex is coming under scrutiny. From your point of view, what went wrong? How could this have been avoided? As Open Arms, we cannot express our opinions since the investigation is still ongoing. But we only can say that the search and rescue procedures put in place by the Greek Coast Guard should be always oriented to protect life uh, at the sea and not to put it uh, on risk. Uh, we just want to stress the fact that uh, uh, when they start to investigate on this shipwreck, uh, the um, the institutions were more focused on uh, um, the trafficking topic than uh, to uh, to understand and to to investigate on what uh, really happened and which are the role, especially the, the role of the, um, the Greek uh, Coast Guard. So we, we hope that this investigation would uh, stress the attention on what happened in order to avoid the risk that it happened again. Okay. Since we're talking about search and rescue, can you explain to us a little about the technical and legal complexities of performing a sea rescue, which is obviously a, a very difficult process? There are, all, there are all the issues of who has jurisdiction before we even get to the problem of removing dozens or hundreds of people from old vessels in the middle of the sea. How does it work? 
The rest of activity cannot be well performed without any notions or experience. Uh, the main and the immediately risk run during the approach to a distressed vessel. Um, the main risk is to unbalancing uh, this uh, vessel and the, the boat risk to capsize them. That is what happened, for instance, uh, during the, the rescue from the Greek Coast Guard uh, last, uh, last June. And the people uh, often are without any life jackets, so they risk seriously to die. The first action to do is to maintain the calm, to keep the calm and to recommend it to the people on board and put the people on safety, distributing immediately the life jackets. This is the first step before to, to think to, to carry people on board or before doing anything. The first step is to, um, to put them in safe uh, in their boat. Because, of course, if, if you give them the life jackets, then even if the boat does capsize or sink, they have a chance of surviving. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, um, Valentina, just to finish off, uh, in your discussions with uh, European policymakers, what's the one thing that you stress to them more than anything else that needs to change so that the Mediterranean stops being, as Open Arms says on its website, the largest mass grave on the planet? One of the main advocacy points we stress uh, uh, is the change of the visa policies. <laughs> They are totally discriminatory and for some nationalities it is impossible to get an European visa. This is a long-term proposal, absolutely, but in, and in a short time we need to have a search and rescue operation put in place by the European government or also by the Italian government. But anyway, we need to have an emergency plan supported by the governments in order to, to rescue more people uh, that we, we can do. Okay, so as a, as a first step, try to save people at sea, and as a second step, try to create a process where they can uh, migrate or seek asylum in Europe through safe routes. Yes, a legal uh, pathway is the only solution. We have to, to work on it at uh, European, but also at African level. The African Union have to talk with uh, with the European Union in order to put in place the best plan in order to rescue people. <laughs> okay, Valentina, thank you very much for your insight. That's very useful for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ayo. That was Valentina Brinis of the Barcelona-based NGO Open Arms speaking to Nick. So, Phoebe, there's a number of things that you can take away from what Valentina had to say, but I guess if you're going to focus on one, I, I would focus on the fact that if there's a vessel in distress, the first thing you do is make sure that the people on board are not at risk of losing their lives. It, it, it seems common sense. As she suggests, distributing life jackets is a basic move. and Sadly, one that does not seem to have happened in the case of the Adriana, which raises even more questions in my mind. Whichever way you look at it, Nick, this is an infuriating and tragic story. And for me, as an American, 
and an American history major, well, only one thing came to mind when, when this happened, and I couldn't get I couldn't get the image of slave ships out of my head and, and the millions that died chained in the hold of a boat before even reaching shore. So in 2023, to allow such a massive loss of life when it may have been avoidable is really hard to take. And what makes it worse is that it's not the first and most probably won't be the last time we witness something like this in the Mediterranean. Yeah. When you consider how the climate crisis is likely to affect migration in the coming years, it amounts to a really worrying issue. Extremely. But let's leave it here for now. And you want to continue this discussion over beer and off the record? I think we could all use a drink after that. Uh, yeah, let's meet outside in 10. Let's do it. Guys, thanks for joining us on the Agora. As always, we love to hear your views and feedback. We'll try to return with one more episode before our summer holidays to close out season four. Bye-bye for now. Mm-hmm.